time for our pastoral prayer. So if you'll join your hearts with me in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We exalt your holy name. We praise your name. In your perfect faithfulness, you've done wonderful things. Things planned long ago that you continue the good work of today in us, through us, and ahead of us. We praise you, Lord. Lord, you have established kingdoms and rulers. It is all in your hands. We praise you today. You've made the heavens and the earth. Your name is higher than any other name. We thank you today, Lord. Father, today we ask for your blessings on those who are sick and grieving among us and represented by us, as well as those across the world. We ask for your healing hand of comfort. May your presence be known in those spaces. Heal in the depths. Heal all the parts of the bodies, Lord. Minister and have mercy on those who are grieving, who are suffering. In the places of war, we ask for your mercy. May your presence continue to be known. May the work of your spirit be evident. May people be brought to the truth through the suffering, Lord. And we do ask for an end of the suffering. Lord, be with those suffering mental illnesses. Give courage to reach out for support, for care, for change, for healing. Minister to the depths of souls. May resources be available for those who need healing in mind and body. Show us ways to support those suffering, Lord. May we be intentional in reaching out. May we be intentional in reaching out to the broken places, Lord. May we be desperately working for your healing for ourselves and for those in our communities, Lord. Father, we thank you again for the many ministries here at HBIC and represented beyond these walls. We thank you for your good, good work, for the places that discipleship is happening, where community is being built, where healing is happening. We praise you. And we thank you for the new groups that are starting. Bless those bonds, Lord. Bless community. Make connections happen. Show us how to reach out and support. And continue to be with those in our midst who haven't found ways to plug in. Guide them. Lord, help us to let our priorities be your priorities. Show us how to plug in into community. Grow us towards you. We ask for continued blessings, Lord, as we look forward to what you have for us as a church body. Give us discernment. May we just know the guiding of your Holy Spirit. Bless us as we continue the good work being done and show us the spaces where new new things need to be created. Just help us to obediently follow you. And we ask for unity among our members, Lord. Unity of heart and mind as we care for one another. May we, above all, 
care for one another and love one another. It is through our love for one another that they will know we are yours. May our love shine outside of these walls. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit's work and Pastor Hank as he has prepared today's message for us. Open our eyes to the places we show favoritism. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. And may we be attentive to those spaces. Help us to submit ourselves to the change that needs to happen. To care for everyone, to love everyone. And we just thank you for the beauty and joy found in that obedience. Thank you. Open our hearts today to hear what your spirit has for us. May we go forward from here changed. We love you, Lord. We want to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Kids and youth are dismissed at this time. Um, as we gather to worship this morning, just uh, celebrating and holding on to and praising God just for the truth that we are indeed family with God. We're indeed family together. Um, thinking specifically about us being family because we're bought by the blood of Christ and us being family because God has chosen to love us. So as we hold that, we're going to be continuing through our series this morning in James, living out our faith. Um, as we said, this is a season of Eastertide in the greater church between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost. And it's this season that the worldwide church asks this question of, you know, how do we celebrate Jesus's resurrection? How do we celebrate resurrection life? And so for us, we've kind of centered it in saying, well, what does that new life in Christ look like? Um, this is a question for the lifetime. This is a question that hopefully you ask every day. You know, what does new life in Christ look like in me? What does new life in Christ look like today? And, and to help us answer during the season, we're going through the book of James, where James is going to consistently tell us to live out our faith. Now, the major theme of James that we've been talking about is that faith must show up not only what you believe, but in your life and in your practice. Faith must be something you know, something you hold, but also something you live out with your hands. And so when I first started reading through this passage in, in, in James chapter 2, it was like pretty obvious, right? James is saying, like, we shouldn't show favoritism. Like, that's really, really important. But as I read and I read and I read, and I was like, Lord, I feel like there's something else here that, I, that I'm not getting out of this. Like, what are you pushing us to see? And so the question then becomes, okay, what does James say in here? Remember, as James is writing, he's writing with the echo of Jesus. He's writing not only as the brother of Jesus or as a follower of Jesus, but he's writing as someone who's taken what Jesus has taught and, and so lived it that it comes out out of him as well. So it's helpful to read James alongside the Sermon on the Mount. As I did that reading this week, I found that the, the true message, the true new thing, and the true challenge that James is calling his people or God's people to do is not just to not show favoritism, right? If you're blessed to have siblings or you're ever in a classroom setting, you know, like, no one likes favoritism unless you're the class favorite, right? Like, no one likes it unless you're the favorite. But the deeper thing I think James is saying in this passage and using favoritism as the example is where he ends, and where he ends is that, are we willing to be people who choose mercy over judgment? Are we willing to be people who sees that God sees, who remember what God has done? But are we willing to be characterized not by our righteousness, not even specifically in this passage about our righteous anger, 
Not simply about how we're trying to follow God, but are we willing to be people who choose mercy over judgment? So with that in mind, I want to take us to James chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 13 verses. Um, If you have it, you can follow along there. We also have it up front. So starting at verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised for those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking of all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of knowing you. We thank you so much for the blessing of a God who sees not the outside as the world sees, but a God who sees the heart. We thank you for the blessing of a God who not only remembers what he's done, but remembers us. And we thank you for a God who chooses mercy over judgment. So Father, now as we come before you, as we continue in worship, we pray that we may see as you see. We pray that we may be committed to surrendering to the Spirit. We pray that we in our lives, as we go through our everyday scenes, may be committing to loving the way you have loved. And God, we thank you that we not only have you, the Holy Spirit, that we not only have you, Jesus, our Christ, but we thank you that you've gifted us with the gift of the church, of sisters and brothers to help us in the journey as well. So Lord, be with us now as we continue our worship. Be with us now as we seek to be people who not only surrender to the Spirit, live in love like Jesus, but who, like our Father, are choosing mercy over judgment. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So last week when we talked about the end of James chapter 1, James ends that chapter talking about the character, the identity, and the fruit of the people of God. For James, if you belong to God, you must look like God. The same thing that God does, we must do. And then for James, the identity of who we are must be found in God and God alone. And that's hard for us because there's so many different ways we self-identify. There's so many different ways the world identifies us. It might be what we look like. It might be our education level. It might be where we live. It might be our socioeconomic status. In this country, it might be our skin color. There's so many different ways that the world either characterizes or or even we ourselves self-identify. But for James, your primary identity must be in Christ. And if your primary identity must, if your primary identity is not in Christ, then it's idolatry. No matter what good thing, if your primary identity is not in Christ, it's idolatry. 
And then he challenges us to say, yeah, the character is to look like our God. Our identity is to be in Christ. But the fruit is obeying the word of God. And in that obedience to the word of God, we will not only model Christ for our world, but in that obedience to the word of God, we will not only submit to the word, but we will also be able to shine for the kingdom. But now this week, in continuing on this idea of what does it mean to follow God, what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it mean to have this character of God, James is going to challenge us. Do we really see the way God sees? Do we really remember what the kingdom and who the kingdom belongs to? And are we willing to choose mercy over judgment? In James chapter 2, he's still speaking to the Agapitoia Delphoi, right? We said last week it makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. The Agapitoia Delphoi. He's speaking to the Agapitoi, the beloved, God's favorites, those who are loved by God with the way God loves, those who are loved by God in the way that God works for their good, those who are loved by God in God's perfect love. To the Adelphoi, the brethren, the brothers and sisters, Jesus' family that have been bought by his blood. And to this beloved favorites, those loved by God, God's family, James says, let me tell you more about the character of God. Those who belong to the people of God, those who are indeed God's children, Jesus' followers, they see as God sees. Now, this is a a, a teaching that's all throughout the Old Testament. Maybe the classic example is when David is anointed king. If you remember that story, Saul had sinned against God and, and kind of started going his own way. And God says, I will raise up a new king. And so he gets the prophet Samuel and says, Samuel, why are you depressed? We're doing a new thing. I have a new king for you. And so he sends Samuel to Jesse's house. And and Jesse parades out all his children, well, most of them, right? And so the boys all come out. And the first one comes up, and Samuel's thinking, wow, tall, dark, handsome. Got to be him. And God's like, no, 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 that's not the one. And another son, and another son, and another son. And Samuel's confused because he's just like, we need a king. We need someone who's imposing. We need someone who's intimidating. Like, God, what are you doing? And God said, that's not the one. And so Samuel goes in and God says, this is, this is not the one. So Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, is there anyone else? And Jesse's like, well, there's, there's David. I mean, he's like taking care of the sheep, like out there somewhere, but we'll send for him. And so David comes to the scene and God says, yes, that's the one. That's the one I've chosen. And so this lesson begins where God says, it doesn't matter how the world sees you. It doesn't matter how you see you. It matters how I see you. It doesn't matter what the world exalts, strong, powerful, good-looking, tall. It matters your heart. And again, the Old Testament understanding of heart wasn't just like feeling good, right? It was the essence of who someone is. It's your hopes, your dreams, your, your gifts, your skills, your abilities, all that you are. God sees the heart. And of course, the classic New Testament example is probably the lady at the well, Jesus, a Samaritan woman. I love that story because there's so many things about identity that gets submitted to Christ. First of all, you have that Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. To say they were mortal enemies would be an understatement. Jesus is a man. She's a woman. In that culture, she's supposed to bow down to him. Jesus is a rabbi. She's at best a heathen. There's so many reasons why they should not connect. But as you read through John chapter 4, 
As you see how Jesus not only meets her where she's at, but takes her to where he desires her to be, you see that Jesus doesn't just see her as a Samaritan, as a woman, as a heathen. Jesus sees her heart. And when she submits and surrenders to her king, Jesus, you have this lady who goes on to be maybe the first evangelist in the entire New Testament. This outsider, this heathen, this woman who's looked down upon in her society, she's the one who goes. And I love this because if you want to teach evangelism 101, remember her story. She didn't have the seminary degree. She didn't have the, 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 the knowledge of all the scriptures. All she did is she went back to who she knew. What did she say? Come and see. I've met this Jesus, the Messiah, and you need to meet him. And that's how she goes out. Why? Because Jesus sees her heart. And that is enough. The challenge for us is we also are to see as God sees. The, the, the Greek talks about the word in English has no partiality, no respect of persons. The idea here is that what the world exalts, what the world values, we must not put that above our identity in Christ and our identity as the family of Christ. Now, it's easy to look in this passage and be like, yeah. If someone's wealthy, we can't put them along someone who's poor. That doesn't make sense, right? If someone's more influential, we can't push them to the front and hide other people in the back. That's not who we are. But I think that's easy to do that part. The challenge for us becomes, what are the things in the blind spots and the things that we exalt in our culture or within ourselves that we push to the front and push others to the back? For some of us, that could be our education. Right? It's like, I am educated, so I should be here. Right? For some of us, it's our experience. I've been here for 30 years. you got to listen to me. For some of us, it's our bank account. I earned this money. You're going to listen to me. In this country, for some of us, it's our whiteness, which has been propelled so far ahead that everything is supposed to be translated in light of that. It's easy to say, don't exalt the rich above the poor. But what about the things that make us feel good? What about the things that exalt us? Are we willing to submit and surrender that to the Christ? Are we willing to, to kind of empty ourselves of that? Because if we value things the world values, there's a good chance we're not living in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. If we exalt ourselves above each other, we are not being faithful followers of Christ. Are we willing to see as God sees? Because if we see as God sees, we're not just all equal. We're not just all sisters and brothers. We are all together the family of God. We are all bought by the blood of Jesus. We who believe all have the spirit indwelling in us. But all of us then belong to one another. Are we willing to see as God sees? The second thing that James builds on the character of the people of God here is that they remember that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. Remember, this is a foundational beatitude. It's the very first one in Matthew 5 that Jesus teaches from, right? And the idea here is that Jesus is going to call us to say, this is what the people of God look like. This is what my people look like. And as part of this foundational beatitude, he starts off with this idea that we have to empty ourselves of everything. In Philippians 2, Jesus does the same thing. He emptied himself of everything to even come to earth. And the idea here for us is those things that you hold on to, those things that you value, those things that the world values and, and gives you and exalts, are you willing to let go of those? 
Are you willing to, to submit all of that into God? Because here's the thing. If we're holding on to our whiteness or our blackness, our education, or maybe even our, our, our socioeconomic status, our bank account, right, our, our prestige, our family, if we're holding on to all these things, then our hands are closed to what our God is asking to give. Because you can't receive from God what God wants to give you if you're too busy holding on to the things the world values. And so this foundational thinking of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is this question that are you willing to empty yourself of everything? Because the poor in spirit that Jesus speaks to in Matthew and that James is kind of subtweeting or subquoting here, the poor in spirit are not just simply poor when it comes to wealth. The poor in spirit are those people in our culture and society who have no power, who have no prestige, who have no influence, who are downtrodden, oppressed. They're the ones who have no earthly resources, but they're still willing to put their trust fully in God. The poor in spirit are the ones who empty themselves of things that might be seen as blessings everywhere, whether it's your family and your status in your family, whether it's the power that you have based on how much money you have or the job you have or the prestige you have. Or for some of us, it's, 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 it's the nation that we're all a part of, right? Like as Americans, what does it mean to be an American? What privileges comes with that? Maybe it's our wealth, maybe it's our education, maybe it's our skills. All these things, the poor in spirit are willing to empty themselves of all these things, leave them at the throne, and say, God, if my identity is in any of these good things, then I'm not going to get the great things that you have for me. And I have to surrender them to you. The poor in spirit are willing to empty themselves and fully submit to God. But then James also wants us, though, to remember the poor. Because in this passage, he's talking not just in a vacuum. He's talking to a specific kind of person. He's saying, I've seen this in the synagogue. I've seen this when we gather. I've seen when the wealthier are among us. And who the man he described or the person he describes here would have been wealthy, would have been prestigious, would have been elevated in that society. When they walked through, the seas parted, and everyone pushed them to the front. And you can see from the outside what they look like. And James says, I want you to remember two things. We live in a society where the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. We live in a society where those without education, those without opportunity, those without resources are left behind. But if we are the body of Christ, we cannot leave anyone behind. When I was in fifth grade, I, um, this is kind of like shocking to me this week, but in September this year, I would have been in America for 30 years. Like That's like wild to me, right? When I came to fifth grade, when I came here in fifth grade, I was in North Jersey. And in fifth grade, right, by the time I got to fifth grade, um, we had gone through civil war. We're still going on in Liberia. My dad had been killed. We had been a refugee in Sierra Leone, right, running for our lives from the war. We settled in Abidjan, Ivory Coast, and became immigrants because we thought we would sit there for a while, right? And then the, the U.S. government uh, allowed me to travel on something called laissez-passe, which literally means, like, let him pass, right? Like, like. When the war is going on, you don't even have time to go to immigration and get a passport. So you get like a stamp, you know, it's just like, here you go, right? And, and so, but when we settled in America, I was so excited, right? Because I was told America is the land of opportunity, right? America is like money might as well grow on trees because it's so amazing there, right? Then I got to America and three things shocked me. One, white people are real. 
Like, that's shocking, right? Like, I saw them on TV, and they look like me, they talk like me, and, like, they somewhat seem like humans, and, like, that they're real, right? The second thing that shocked me was this whole thing y'all call winter. Like, who would choose this, right? I love when people are like, I miss the season. I'm like, why? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you really miss being out there in two-degree weather shoveling? Like, really? You know? Like, you wouldn't take Harper, Liberia, the beach in 75 degree every day, every single day? Like, you wouldn't take that? Like, you can watch the seasons on TV. Like, you can literally, you, know, you can watch all the snow you want, right? And I kid you not, my freshman year, my, uh, my best friend Mike, I hope he's watching too, um, had only lived in warm climates, right? Miami and literally Los Angeles. The man had never seen snow before. And the first time it snowed, this is before we had camera phones, right? We still had like the, 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 the camera, you had to hook onto the top of your desktop, right? And so this man puts out his beach towel, lays down, he's like, Hank, you gotta film this and show my family. I'm like, what are we doing, you know? So we're in Miller Basement Messiah and I got a camera hanging out the door and the man's like, I think this is God speaking to us, you know? And I'm just like, it's winter, man. Like, no one likes this winter thing. But the third thing that shocked me after white people being real and winter existing for some reason, I don't know, was that in America, in this land of opportunity, the fact that I was black put me at the bottom of the totem pole. And even though we're in what's considered a very liberal part of the country, right, education number one, without any testing, against the protestation of my family, and, and not even talking and even seeing if anything we're saying was true, I actually got placed in a learning support classroom. And, and what was fascinating about that is that it made my transition to America really easy, right? Like, like in fourth grade, I had to learn French. And I told, I've told you guys this story before. My mom's like, you're allowed to struggle everywhere but math. Math is numbers, right? I don't care you don't speak French. It's numbers. You will do good in math. And next semester, everything A's. It's like no pressure, right? But I come to America and I get one piece of paper that takes me two minutes to do, and I have nothing else. Like nothing else. Like the whole day I just sit there. But I'm grateful for those days for three reasons. Well, maybe two really. One of them is my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Petruzzelli, who's a saint. The one I'm not sure that I'm grateful for is she made me a Mets fan. And that's been a curse since 1992. <laughs> but the third thing I am faithful for is that in that learning support classroom, I learned compassion. Because if you think middle school is hard, <laughs> if you think middle school is impossible, imagine being in middle school with kids with intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, kids that no one invites to parties, kids that don't play sports, kids that aren't popular, and those were my only friends. In the beginning, those were the only kids I knew. And, and so in Mrs. Petruzzelli's class, I wasn't trying to be Jesus or trying to be a saint. I didn't know any better. What I hold on nearly 30 years later is that we live in a society where it's easy to leave people behind. We live in a society where when people don't fit in, we kind of can usher them to the side. We live in a society where it's messy to try to figure out, like, how do we give everyone not just their dignity, but give them a place? And what Mrs. Petruzzelli taught me is that we're all called to do something about it. And so even in fifth grade, she was like, listen, you don't belong in this class, but as long as you're here, you're gonna help. And so I started teaching and tutoring those kids. And I thought like that was like me being good. But years later, I remember those people because they taught me what compassion looks like. 
And they taught me what responsibility looks like. And they taught me that it's not just enough to say society leaves people behind. It's the job of all of us to push these people forward. To not just catch up, but surpass. So James is saying here, remember the poor. Because in this society, like his society, the poor were made poor by the rich. In our culture, when someone's wealthy, we elevate them. We do. And it's not just celebrity. And it's not just presidencies. We, we, we literally, we, we can all critique the prosperity gospel and be like, yeah, yeah, that's not good. God doesn't bless you by being rich. But we can all do that, right? But we all have to take a step back and realize that we uphold some of these systems that make these people wealthy. Right? I keep saying, I've yet to find a billionaire that made a billion dollars without oppressing somebody. And if you read through the scriptures carefully, especially through the prophets, we think more highly of the rich than the prophets does. That would even argue than God does. We uphold them. It's like, they must be rich. They must be amazing. God looks at them in scripture, probably backs it up. They're like, they must have oppressed. They must have hurt and stole from somebody. They must have broken somebody's back. So James says, I want you to remember these rich people when they come among you. One, we're all equals in the family of Christ. But two, don't give them a higher place because we're all equal. And three, remember, these are your oppressors. And how then do we do all of this messiness? How do we stay in the family with all of us equal, right? Because we all have these different identity markers. How do we do it? James says, I want you to remember the royal law of love. Royal because God is king. And what God has decreed is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. James says, listen, we are all called to follow the law of God. And if you miss one aspect of the law of God, you've broken all of it. Right? So the idea of loving your neighbor is fulfilling that law. This is important because James doesn't just pick out of the, the thin air adultery and murder. Because James is working within a context where there was zealots among them. Now, these zealots, you might have to stretch your imagination a little bit, were people who were faithful to God. And some of them were even in Jesus' camp who are now faithful to Jesus. But they hated the fact that they were in opposition, that they were in land where the, the oppressors had, had conquered their promised land. They hated the fact that Rome mattered more than Jerusalem, that Caesar mattered more than Yahweh. They hated the fact that this land that God promised them wasn't even available to them. I know as Americans, we're always worried about people coming to get us, right? Like, we're always worried. About, like, like, I love, I have friends, and they know who they are. Like, I have friends who are just like, I have 10 guns because when the government comes, I'll be ready. I'm like, yes. They will pause. They will let you go down the basement, get your 10 guns ready. And then when you're ready, they'll be like, now we're ready to go. It's like, do you know how powerful the American government is? I know I'm a pacifist and a Baptist. Do you know how powerful our military is? America knows more ways to kill people than any of us want to imagine. And these zealots, that's how they saw Rome. They knew Rome was so powerful, and there's nothing they could do to the top of Rome. So they sat on to their righteous anger. And we talked about anger last week, right? Why we need to literally deposit this at the feet of Jesus, because when we hold on to that anger, it gets mixed. It might start off righteous, but it gets mixed with ego. It gets mixed with self-centeredness. It gets mixed with, with sin. And it gets mixed with, with us thinking we know right. And it always leads to destruction. And so these righteous, angry zealots were like, we can't topple Rome, but we can kill a few billionaires. 
And that's what they were okay with. I know for some of us that seems extreme, but we have to remember that we as Americans, right, are in a country that's not only uphold the whiteness, that has been at war for over 90% of our existence. So the privileges we have in this country have been fought for on the backs of other people for 90% of our existence. 93, I think, if you want to do the math, right? Like, that's the setting we're in. And so there's a lot of people who have this righteous anger, and James is saying, listen, I don't care how righteous your anger is. If you don't submit to God, it's sin. But here he's saying, yeah, you think killing a Roman is a righteous thing because they're in your land. But I'm telling you, that's still breaking the law. And that makes you just as bad as someone who's an adulterer, as someone who's a murderer. That makes you just as bad if you don't love your brother, if you don't love your sister, you are not fulfilling God's law. Because as messy as it is, when we truly love one another, we're being faithful, not only to each other, but to God. Because what we're called to be as the people of God is to bring shalom into this world, which means what we're called to do is not just, oh, I'm good with God, but am I good with my sister? Am I good with my brother? Am I bringing shalom and peace into my neighborhood, my community, my block, my family? That's what we're called to do. And then James reminds us and circles back to this idea of obeying the word, right? And we said this last week, that God's law leads to freedom. Now, I know most of us, I shouldn't put this on you, maybe it's just me, right? But some of us, when we drive, we don't feel like the traffic laws leads to freedom. In fact, in my life, I've only seen one person talk themselves into a ticket. You know, most of us, like, if we sneak by and the cop misses us, we're like, praise the Lord, right? We praise in a different way, right? I was with one of the, 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 the grandmothers of my church that I grew up in. And we were going, and she was a little bit rushed and hurry, ran right through the stop sign. And as a teenager, I was like, ooh, you know? But it's, I'm trying to play it cool because I'm just like, can I yell at her? Like, how does this work, you know? And the cop sees it right away and pulls her over. But it turns out that cop she had had in VBS years before. And in one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in my life, he's trying not to give her a ticket, and she's trying to get the ticket. And I'm sitting in the middle like, what is happening? You know, because he was like, it's okay. I almost said her name to first service too. He's like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. You know, you're in a hurry. She's like, no, I broke the law, and, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Like, it's a stop sign for a reason. I'm just like, we want to empty ourselves of privileges, but we need to ride this one out. Like, we need to take this privilege. Like, you're good, you know? And she's like, no, 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 I broke the law. And I remember being aghast, right? And I'm just like, who does this? Like, who takes the ticket? It's one thing if you plead your case and they say no, they give you the ticket. But he was just like, it's okay, it's cool, grace, you know? And she was just like, no, no, I will take this ticket. And I'm sitting there like, wow, you know? But years later, I remember that story because of what it teaches, right? You run that stop sign and a kid's walking across the street. You run that stop sign, another car is coming. The laws are there not to restrict us, right? The law are there for greater freedom that allows us to thrive. And that's important because I think that so many of us look at God's law as things that hold us down, right? But if everyone ignored traffic tickets, if everyone ignored traffic laws, None of us would be able to drive. And, and so what James is saying here is like, remember that God's law leads to freedom. But then he undergirds that with this truth. We are all responsible for the laws that we know. Meaning that on the day of judgment, 
God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that's all of the commandments. 619, you can wrap them all up into those two things. Meaning that on the day of judgment, when you stand before the God of the universe, he's going to basically ask, have you loved me with all your heart? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And so James says, this is how we ought to live. This is how we ought to speak and act. In light of the fact that God holds us responsible for the laws that God has revealed to us. And the joy of this is when we obey God's word, when we obey this law, God works in and through us. So if we're going to be the family of God, the beloved favorites loved of God, we need to see as God sees. We need to remember the kingdom belongs to not to the powerful, but to the meek. Not to the exalted, but to the humble. Not to the ones that our world and society says is important, but honestly to the one that our world leaves behind. We must remember the poor. We must remember the law of love and to love one another. And then James kind of sums it all up with we must be people who choose mercy over judgment. And you hear this echoing throughout the New Testament. John goes in on this. Jesus himself says this, right? Be merciful as God is forgive, merciful. Forgive as your father forgive, right? And Jesus himself will tell us, like, how can you expect to be forgiven by God if you're not willing to forgive yourself? So the challenge to us in choosing mercy over judgment is, are we willing to be merciful as God is merciful? As I thought about mercy over judgment this week, I realized something, and it's a story I struggled to share, but I think it's important to kind of drive this point home. Many of you know my dad was killed during the Liberian Civil War. I was six years old. But what I don't think I've ever shared maybe publicly, especially like this, hi, Internet, that when my dad was killed, I was out of the country. My, my grandmother and I had escaped. And my parents had stayed behind. And when my dad knew his life was in danger, he went into hiding. And there was only two people who knew where he was. And one of them was my mother. So I'm not the best at math, right? But if you do the law of averages, if my mom didn't do it, Someone else sold him out. And so one of the things I didn't realize up until literally 2020, the spring of 2020, is how much I had been holding on to this judgment in my heart. I thought I had conquered it because, you see, from the time my dad was killed at 6 till about 21, I honestly thought my goal in life was to kill the people who killed my dad. I don't know if I got it from some Hollywood movie, or I just thought, like, that's how you fight for honor. But I had it in my head, right? Like, that's why I'm my dad's only son, right? Like, I, this is my job. Like, I'm supposed to kill these people. And then somewhere along the way, Jesus made me an Anabaptist and made me, like, love my enemies. And, like, so, like, we went through all of that, and I thought I was good. But in 2020, I talked to my dad's last living sister for the first time in 30 years. And in one conversation... I realized that these feelings I had buried so deep within were still there. I remember feeling almost like a six-year-old again, feeling betrayed. Like that betrayal by your own that leads to the loss of life. I remember holding all of that. And then my cousin takes the phone. And, and, and this is, like, I love talking to people in Liberia because it reminds me how American I am, right? Like he takes the phone. The first thing he says is like, not, hey, how's it going? How's your day? I know it's been 30 years, but how are you? First thing he says is like, I'm going to tell you how your dad died. I'll say, oh, cool, I'm doing great today. You know, this is what we're doing right now. But in that conversation, I realized that I had not fully forgiven my dad's family. 
And I realized that I had not necessarily chosen judgment, oh, I'm going to kill these people, but I had never forgiven them. And so when I read this passage this week, I was challenged because what does forgiveness look like? Because mercy isn't laissez-faire, right? Like mercy isn't just like anything goes, hakuna matata, means no worries. That's not mercy. But mercy isn't also ignoring arrogance or ignoring uh, uh, sin or ignoring hurt, right? That's not mercy either. See, if grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, then mercy is the flip side of that, of God giving us or not giving us what we do deserve. And what I realized in those two conversations was that I needed to show them mercy, not because of the betrayal, and not just because God loves me and God loves them equally, but because I couldn't be free if I held on to hate. And in that conversation, I realized that mercy is actually intentional love. That people are gonna hurt us, but when we hold on to that hurt, the bitterness is what kills us. And the bitterness doesn't just kill relationships, it kills you. And I had to learn that in that conversation, if I wanted to look like my Jesus, I had to choose mercy. And I'm not telling you this because I'm a better Christian than you. I'm just telling you this because God has put it on my heart that we as people must choose mercy over judgment. And it's not just because God is merciful, but it's because it'll set us free. It'll restore, it'll redeem, it'll help us to reconcile too. The longer we hold on to hate, the longer we hold on to, 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 to that hurt and let that hurt have power over us, the harder it will be. And, and so I came out of that conversation realizing that it's important, yes, for people to take ownership of what they've done, but it's more important for us as Christians to choose to love and to choose that mercy over judgment. And that mercy isn't just some automatic thing I think that's how we kind of think of God's mercy, right? He's God, it's automatic, right? No, it's intentional. So it's not necessarily laissez-faire, anything goes, right? We're learning French this morning, right? It's, it's my laissez-passer, which allowed me to come to America. Because laissez-faire says anything goes. Laissez-passer says, I see you. I forgive you. Come on in. And that's what mercy looks like. So if we're going to be the people of God who choose mercy over judgment, we must all be committed to seeing as God sees. We must all remember that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. We must all submit to the, 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 the law of God that says, love your neighbor and love your God. If we're going to choose mercy over judgment, we're going to be what our Father looks like. And our world will see. And they'll glorify our Father in heaven, yes. But the kingdom will also go forth. I'd like to invite up Pastor Ryan we're going to conclude uh, our service with um, communion. Again, um, with communion here, uh, we, as you came in, hopefully you got the elements. If you need help or you didn't pick them up coming in, just raise your hand. Several people from the back can come up and get you elements. They're walking around. Um, again, we, we, we celebrate new life in Jesus with communion. We, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup.
We don't require you to be a member of Harrison Brethren in Christ Church. We just require you to be a member of Christ Church, right? If you believe in Jesus, we invite you to come to the table. Um, as you gather this cup in preparation, we ask you to please hold them. We'll lead you through some liturgy together. Again, the table of the Lord is open for all who believe, all who have received Jesus Christ. So we'd like to invite you to the table. Before we get into the communion liturgy itself, I want to lead us in that responsive reading um, that's taken from the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Luke chapter 6. Um, just a great scriptural example of the way that God's kingdom is sometimes called, as, as Hank mentioned in the sermon, the upside-down kingdom. So I'll say the pastor portion, me and Hank will, and then you guys say the congregation portion, obviously. Um, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of God. But woe to the rich, for they have already received their comfort. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they will be satisfied. But woe to those who are well fed now, for they will go hungry. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. But woe to those who laugh now, for they will mourn. Woe to those who everyone speaks well of. But blessed are those